Genesis 29, 1-30-24 Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, 
Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. As, as we continue following the line of the chosen family of God, um, we got to remember that, that just kind of like, like Caleb has been talking about recently, that, that Jacob is new in his walk with God, right? Up until last week, Jacob hadn't really had an f- interaction with God, so it wasn't surprising that he was kind of sinful. It wasn't surprising that he wasn't really seeking the will of God and the things that he was doing and all of the things that he was doing, even though he was the one that God had promised was going to be used by him to accomplish bringing salvation to the world. Even though though Jacob was the next in the chosen line from Abraham, he continues to be sinful. He continues to be broken. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see that he still makes weird decisions and that the people he surrounds himself with make make broken, sinful kinds of decisions. While he may have been drastically changed by his experience with God, right? Because, Because he's now had this amazing vision, this amazing interaction with God. And while he has experienced that, that doesn't mean that the work of sanctification, the work of becoming more like Christ, even though Christ hasn't come yet, but even more even more, hasn't become more like God, even though he's had this amazing experience where he's, he's witnessed angels ascending and descending and he's heard the voice of the Lord and this amazing thing. That doesn't mean all of a sudden the work of God changing him is immediately complete. He is still going to be a work in progress. 
He still has not yet matured, become more holy yet. That work is ongoing in Jacob. And what we're going to see is that that immaturity and deceitfulness is not just limited to Jacob, as we saw in all of this that we just read, um, but that the actions of those who don't follow God should not surprise us when they do sinful, broken things. None of the things that we just read about in, in, in either of these chapters, and, and I've been thinking about you know, how, much, how much detail do I want to get into on some of these parts, because some of these parts are kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a weird dicey section. But suffice it to say, it's not surprising that Jacob, who is a new believer, is acting like someone who doesn't really know how to be a believer, And the people that he's going to meet, these people that he's going to find a wife from, also are not believers. They don't don't know God. There's an interesting little word cue in here at the beginning of chapter 29. Right at the beginning, when it says he went to go see the land of the people of the east. Now, in the past, when, when Abraham sent his servant to go find Isaac a wife, it said, go, go to this region, go to my family's house and find a wife for my son. But for the first time, we're seeing this place that Jacob is being sent being called the land of the people of the east, which, which carries kind of this subtle connotation of these are people who do not follow God. These are people from somewhere else that believe in different things and practice different beliefs. And so for the first time, and, and I think that's interesting because you have to remember, Abraham was very specific when he sent his servant to go find his son, Isaac, a bride. He said, I want you to go here because I want him to find somebody who's going to follow God, who's not going to turn his heart away, right? And I want you to go because I don't want him to, to have his heart turned and decide to stay because this is the land that God has promised to our family, and so, and so as we see, there's a lot of similarities in this story. A father sending a son or somebody to represent his son off to go find a bride from the place where their family is from, going to a different land. But, but there are some differences in Abraham sending his servant for Isaac, in Isaac's bride's story and Jacob's bride's story. Jacob, instead of sending a servant, goes himself and is himself going to be staying in this land for 20 years. He's not going to be living in the land that God had promised his father and his father before him. He's not going to be he's going to be pulled away for a long period of time. And in that time he's going to be surrounded by people who are not God-fearing. And if you were paying attention to this whole interaction throughout chapters 29 and 30, these are not God-fearing people just given the way that they treat one another and deal with each other. So Jacob Jacob is going to find himself left in this land, living among people who are not the people of God for a long period of time. You'll remember uh, in Isaac's story, when the servant gets there, he prays, God, you know, reveal this to me, make this, make this obvious who your will is that this person should be. And, and Rebecca comes along and she, she waters all the camels and all the, flock, the, the livestock for the servant who was there. And he's like, this is the one. You've made it obvious to me. This is, who, this is who you've chosen. But in this case, you know, Jacob's asking, you know, 
who is that person? They're like, that's Rachel. And they're like, well, we need to go ahead and water the, the, the animals. They're like, no, we're not supposed to do that yet. And so he's like, it's okay. I'm strong. I will go make a feat of strength to impress the lady, right? I'm going to go move, because it makes a point. This is a large stone that he goes, he's like, I can water your, I can water your sheep for you. Watch this. Ugh. I was never that kind of, I'm going to show off by using feats of strength. Some of you may be. Feats of strength was not my way of showing off. Sarcasm, that was my way of showing off didn't really work so well. Anyways, but so instead, instead of going out and, and waiting for God to make himself, <laughs> you don't like my sarcasm. You roll your eyes at me. We'll have a longer conversation later. Instead, he, he's manufacturing this meeting with Rachel. And, and granted, Rachel is ultimately the one that he's supposed to be married, and Rachel is the one through whom he's going to have children and God is going to continue to bless his family through his relationship with Rachel, but, but not without a whole lot of strife and pain and brokenness and sin that's going to take place. Rachel's family also does not demonstrate the same God-fearing faith that Rebecca's family did. You'll, you'll remember when the servant said, are you ready to go? She's like, yeah, let's go. This is what God wants. I'm ready to go. Let's go meet my husband. But instead, Laban's family is going to keep Jacob present here for 20 years working for him. And in this case, instead of Jacob coming with the, I don't, the, the marriage price or whatever, like that, that's such a weird cultural thing for us because this is not something that's done anymore. Like, I didn't give your dad lots of money so that I could marry you. Like, that's not a thing that we do, but, but, but it, in, in Isaac's case, the servant brought all of this stuff to give so that she could come back with him immediately, and Jacob instead um, offers to work for Laban for seven years so that he can marry his daughter, which, which, which we talked about last week, right? That that's not surprising because everything in Jacob's life up to this point was very works-based. He understood you have to earn favor, you have to earn this, you have to do this to receive something back. I mean, even last week, that's still how he's treating his relationship with God. If you do this for me, I will do this for you. He's still kind of treating this as a, if I do all of the things the right way, I can impress you enough. I can, I can earn your favor enough to be able to marry your daughter. And so for seven years, Jacob, Jacob works under Laban. And, and, and it's not surprising that Laban, in the end, deceives him gives him a different daughter, and then asks him to stay and work for him for seven more years. Because the whole time that Jacob was working for them, Laban prospered. Laban was doing really well. Laban had no reason to make it easy for Jacob to leave and go back to his family's house. There was no reason, because, because Laban was doing great. Laban was making profit. Jacob was a great worker for him. He wasn't having to pay Jacob. Jacob was free labor for him because he was trying to earn something back from Laban. And I just love Jacob's reaction when he gets to the end of the seven years and he's really upset that somebody's deceived him because everything in Jacob's life up to this point has been some form of him deceiving somebody else to get himself something better off than he actually deserved, right? This is, this is who Jacob has been. His name means deceiving, <laughs> right? 
Think about this. This this deceptive guy who his whole life has been tricking people and stealing things that weren't necessarily his. In this moment, somebody comes along, gets the better of him, and what's his response? That's not fair. Why did you do that? I don't have a movie reference, but I have a sports reference. This This would be like... This would, be, this would be like if I complained last year after Clemson handed it to Alabama, right? Because if you watch that national championship game, they handed it to us. We got beat bad. But I couldn't complain because we'd been doing the exact same thing to every other team all season. Literally every other team. Literally, it was, it was gross all season. And so we're all confident that we're going to keep doing the same thing. And then we get beat down. That would be like me complaining. It's not fair that they ran the score up on us. That's basically Jacob's reaction here. It's not fair that you get the better of me in the way that I've been getting the better of everybody else. And it kind of reveals, again, just where Jacob's heart is in this. He still has no perspective. He still thinks, I just got to get by any way that I can. I've still got to get for me what I can. And it's wrong if somebody wrongs me, even though I'm willing to wrong somebody else to get the better of them, to get myself some sort of advantage. And again, Laban continued to take advantage of Jacob because it was great profit for him. Free labor, who was a solid worker, who, who as we're going to see next week, is a really, like... He's sneaky, but he's smart, and he, gets, and he can get things to happen that are beneficial. He's shrewd in that way. And so, and so after working for seven years, we see that, that Jacob ends up with his, his wife, Rachel. And again, yes, Jacob, one of the fathers who, who would lead to Christ, who would lead to salvation, part of the plan of God, had two wives. Ultimately had four. We read this whole story. It's a mess of people trying to one-up each other, trying to one-up each other, make sure I have kids, I have kids, you get kids, I want kids. It's not fair that she gets kids and I don't get kids. Like, I don't want you to read this and think, well, Jacob had multiple wives, therefore. No, this is not prescriptive of what is the ideal, right? We've talked about this before. He said, he said, two shall become one, and that's it. That's, that's God's standard. One person married to one person. So, so all of what we're seeing in chapters 29 and 30 isn't like a good thing. Even though God is working through it, it is not the ideal This is not what is best. This is not, I mean, I really, like, I was trying to say, how do I want to, like, describe this when I'm talking? It's just a kerfuffle. Does anybody like the word kerfuffle? Can we all agree on the word kerfuffle? I called it the wife kerfuffle in here. I thought that sounded like a a Big Bang Theory title, like an episode title. Kerfuffle. I actually had to spell check it. It's K-E-R-F-U-F-F-L-E. Man, he just had a kerfuffle trying to sort out all these, all these wives. It's a mess. You can go with it's a mess. The whole thing is a mess. And we see that his family is not in a great place. Listen to the way that everybody is talking to one another. Oh, I'm cursed of God. Here, 
have my servant, she will give you sons, then I can win. It's all about me. It's all, it's all me focused. I have to get this. I have to have this. Oh, he doesn't love you, so here, give me this and I'll, I'll send him to you. Give me your son's mandrakes and you can, have, you can have your husband. Like, this is, none of this sounds good. None of this sounds like this is what the people of God should be expected to look like. This is what the people of God should behave like. These are the sorts of things that should be present in the family that God has chosen to work through. Jealousy, preferential treatment, loneliness, present throughout. There is, no, there is no supporting one another and loving one another. And we've talked about it before. We've talked about God being the one who withholds and gives fertility. So, so we're not going to dive deep into that again. But again, Jacob has some perspective on this. Like he's not, he's not completely numb to the idea that God is in control of this. He even says so to Rachel. He's like, don't complain to me. It's not my fault. God's the one working in it. Now granted, that's probably not the right attitude that he should be, you know, explaining that to her with. There's not a whole lot of compassion, love, patience, understanding that she's going through a painful, difficult situation. But this whole situation is wrapped up in people who are not following God, who are not living like they believe in God, who are not having their lives reflect what it looks like to have faith that God is the one at work in all of this. And we're seeing all of these sins that we've seen in the past echoed in the lives of those who are present here. I mean, again, think, Sarah told she was going to have a son. What is it that she does? She says, this is impossible. Here, have my servant. This is an exact replication of the actions of Jacob's grandmother. Exact thing. Except now we're seeing it on a grander scale because he's got... Two different wives that are trying the same thing just to try to one-up each other. This, this competitive, I have to get the better of you. Here, I will force that this, I will insert myself into this situation in a way that forces the hand of God, almost, is what they're thinking. But here's the thing. Even in this moment, even as all of this is happening, even as all of this sinful bickering back and forth, jealousy, Anger, frustration, brokenness, these splintered relationships. Jacob's family increases greatly. Jacob does become the father of all of these different sons. And Dinah, who gets a shout out. She'll come back. She'll be in the story later. But even in this, these, these men who will become the fathers of all the tribes of Israel. These people who will become the defining, the defining people for entire generations of Israelites. Even in this moment, Judah, the father of the tribe through which Jesus would come. Levi, the father of the tribe through which the priestly line would come. All of these people are born amidst this sin and this brokenness and these bad relationships and these people who are not following God. So what are we supposed to do with this? I'm not obviously going to prescribe, so go out, have, have X number of wives, have them all bicker with one another, and then marry their servants. 
That is not the application from this. Even though, even though in the end, Jacob's family is greatly increased and are, and are prepared now to grow and become the nation of Israel. These people are only beginning their walk with God. But, but all of this is still within God's plan. And it's tempting, and, and, and this may be true for you, um, it's tempting to think, oh, they're saved, they should be better by, the, better by now. Oh, I'm saved, I should be better at this by now. I shouldn't look this way, I should not behave this way. Oh, I've had this amazing experience with God. Maybe you went to, maybe you heard this one sermon, or maybe you, you went to this one night in the worship, or maybe... Or maybe God audibly spoke to you. It, d- it does not matter. Jacob had a vision where he saw angels coming up and down from heaven and spoke with God. It doesn't matter what your experience has been. Just because you have had that experience does not mean you are instantly made holy and perfect and just like God. And so we shouldn't read these stories and think, I guess this is what it looks like to be a God-fearing person. No. We should not expect that when, when the people we're following in this book sin, that that means God's not at work or God didn't accomplish anything in them. He's working through broken people. He's working through people who have experienced trauma. He's working through people who still don't always get it. And we shouldn't put so high a standard on them, just like we sometimes should look at ourselves and not put such a high standard that we think, God must not be at work in my life because I ought to be so much better than this by now. The best example I could think of this was Paul. Paul, the apostle, the one who who got it, who got to the point that he got to go see visions of heaven and interact with God in such a way that he said, I can't even describe to you the things I know about God because your little brains can't handle it. Like, that Paul... The Paul who, who seems like the perfect example of what a believer should be, who gave us over half the New Testament. What is it that he says in Romans 7? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Even Paul, who had probably one of the greatest eye-opening or eye-closing experiences Ever. Sorry, that was a great pastor joke. That one made me real happy. With Jesus. Vision of Jesus on the side of the road, knocked off his horse by the presence of God, and he says, you're going to be one of mine now. Even that Paul still was like, man, I am not where I feel like I should be yet. I'm still broken. I still can't make myself do all the things that I feel like I'm supposed to do. And man, I still sin in so many Ways that I hate. Why is that? So what are we, reading that, supposed to realize? We're supposed to realize that we can't place such high expectations, first, on fallen people, that you compare them to Jesus. And this could be anybody. This could be family members. This could be spouses. This could be pastors. This could be community group leaders. This could be, this could be anyone in your life. Now, this is not an excuse to let people sin. This is, not a, this is not to say when people sin, you should just accept it and love it. No, I'm not saying that. We have another Bible that speaks to the way we're supposed to correct and restore brothers and sisters. 
But we shouldn't assume that because somebody claims Christ, and if you're ever on social media, <laughs> ever on social media, that, that's like 90% of what it is when somebody posts something representing their faith. It's, but I saw that you did this one thing this time. You're a horrible person. Jesus must not be real. Right? Like that's, that's, a, that's a summary of Twitter. That is a summary of Facebook. Right? We, 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 we make these assumptions that these people are supposed to be like Jesus, and they aren't, so they're bad, so Jesus is bad. Or, or our faith in Christ is shaken because people that, that claim Christ or have claimed Christ for a long time still occasionally sin or do something that hurts us. And so we desire to just relax on our, our belief in Him. We can't place such high expectations on falling people by comparing them to Jesus. Only Christ has been perfect. Only Christ is the standard. We, shouldn't, we should not be reading these stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And yes, they get these major shout-outs throughout the rest of the Bible, and they've gotten them throughout the rest of history as these people who were chosen by God and used in miraculous ways. But no, they were not Jesus. Only Jesus was Jesus. And the rest of them were broken just like you, me, and everybody else that we interact with. So that's number one. We shouldn't place such high expectations on people who are sinners. Number two. We should not assume that though we or anybody are saved, that they should immediately become sanctified. Don't put that on yourself. Don't say, man, I've been saved for a year now and I still can't get it right. There's two problems with that. One, look at Paul. We've already looked at this example. This is a guy who's writing all of these letters, who's, who's going all over the world preaching the gospel of Christ and he still doesn't get it. Don't be surprised if you still sin. I'm not saying I want you to, but I'm saying... Don't assume that you're going to get it all together immediately. And, and the second part within that is this whole, I should be doing better than I am right now mentality. This idea that it has to be me who makes myself good. We are not the ones who make ourselves good. Because, and here's, here's, the last, here's the last point of application. Because our hope for sanctification is in God alone. Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Only God is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who gives us growth. He is the one who makes us Christ-like. So when we look at God using people like Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban 
and we say, this doesn't look like it's right. This doesn't look like what it should look like. No, it shouldn't. Because they weren't the answer. They weren't Jesus. They were the ones who, who through Jacob, like we just read, this, this long line of history is going to come. There's going to come this king, and this king David is also going to lead toward the real king, the real servant, the real one who's going to save, and that is Christ. And when he is in our lives, when he is in our midst forever, when it's Christ who's at work in us, that's when we will be sanctified. That's when we will become more holy. That is when we will become Christ-like. So if you are looking at this and it's hard for you to look at people who are broken and sinful and being used by God, I would say don't think that they are your salvation. Don't think that those people... don't because. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to say something dumb at some point, and I'm going to hurt your feelings, and I apologize in advance because I know it's coming. But I cannot be Jesus for you. Your pastors cannot be Jesus for you. Yes, we are supposed to, to point you toward him, guide you toward him, but we cannot be your salvation. Your church is not your salvation. Your church is the reward for salvation. Your family is not your salvation. Your parents, your children are not your salvation. Your job is not your salvation. Only Jesus is your salvation. So when you look at things that are broken, do not become discouraged in who Jesus is because there is brokenness present in people who claim him. Because they are a piece of work that he is working on and crafting and molding into something that looks more like him. So do not become disheartened if you are not in Christ or if you are new in being in Christ and, and you see the people of God and they are offensive to you at times. Your hope is in Christ, not in His people. And secondly, don't look at your own life and become discouraged when you still see sin present in it, when you still see brokenness present in it. Because in the end... There's nothing that you are doing that's making yourself better. There's nothing that you are doing that's making yourself complete. The answer is that God is at work in you. Christ, His Holy Spirit that He has placed inside of you as a believer is what is changing you and shaping you. And that takes great patience sometimes. Sometimes we see growth in leaps and bounds, but sometimes He leaves us in a place for a while so that He can reveal to us just how much we need Him. So if you are not in Christ, I want you to see the hope that is in him, the hope of restoring all this brokenness, reconciling us to him, where our relationship with him had previously been broken. He's bringing us back together with him. If you are in Christ, but yet you still see sin present in your life, and it angers you, you don't have to love the sin. Obviously, listen to what Paul said. I do things that I hate. It's okay to be angry at the presence of sin, but don't become don't find yourself left in despair, hopeless, like there's no way out. Because, because the Holy Spirit present in you is changing you. Go to Him. Don't, don't think, I can fix myself. If I continue to fix myself, eventually God will like me more. Because we've seen that that kind of attitude toward God does not work. Instead, realize that you need Him to be the one changing you.